Welcome to The Higher Edge, a podcast for the brightest minds in higher education to hear from the change makers and rule breakers that are driving meaningful, impactful change for colleges and universities across the country. From improving operations to supporting student success, these are the stories that give you The Higher Edge. And now, your host, Brendan Aldridge. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Higher Edge. I'm Brendan Aldrich, and I'm here today with Darla Cooper, who's the executive director of the RP Group. Uh, the RP Group is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization dedicated to evidence-based decision-making that promotes student success, uh, increases equitable outcomes, improves college operations, and informs policymakers in the state of California. Darla, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for joining us here on The Higher Edge. Thank you for having me. First of all, Darla, I know that most people involved in research can take a traditional approach to entering the field, such as your original studies in psychology, uh, before pursuing your master's and doctorate in education. But what I think is even more fascinating is that you started as a counselor. Uh, now, how do you bring that experience forward to support your work in institutional research? Well, at first I didn't. I went through a period where I didn't want people to know that I used to be a counselor because I was kind of trying to move on from that career and wanting to focus on research. And I, I had this somewhat irrational fear that people were going to make me somehow. They could make me start counseling students again when I that's not what I wanted to, to do. Um, but I did spend time. I spent 10 years doing um, counseling um, in a variety of different kind of formats at uh, at USC, University of Southern California. And I, at some point, I, I, I actually had other people had to point it out to me <laughs> that uh, I had a situation where I was doing some work with a, a colleague and I just mentioned that, you know, when I was a counselor, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, and just in, kind of in the middle of everything, they went, wow, oh my God, that explains so much. And I'm kind of like, I don't know how to take that. <laughs> But they they were basically when I was able to talk to them later, they said, oh, well, you seemed different from other researchers. You you had this more kind of human or aspect to your research, you know, really kind of focusing on 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 the, the people and that students are people. These numbers represent people who have full and complete lives and experiences. And so I was like. Oh, I guess it was a compliment then. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I wasn't sure, but. You know, I was doing the counseling piece for some time. And then while I was in graduate school, you know, I had an internship that I had to do. And uh, my teacher, the one doing the internship, I said, I, I don't know what to do. And they were like, oh, the vice president of student affairs needs help with surveys. Go help her. And I went, that sounds boring. Why would I want to do that? And she pretty much just said, shut up and do it. And I just got really like into it to the point where I started making notes about how we can improve the survey and analyzing the data. And the vice president was um, impressed that I you know, got that involved in it and, and had all those opinions. She told me I needed to kind of calm down um, because I didn't obviously coming in as a graduate assistant, you know, kind of level. I didn't understand the full picture. But she took the time to explain. She was a huge mentor for me and life-changing because as a result of that internship, which was unpaid, by the way, but that did turn into a paid graduate assistant position. And then some, you know, I'm going to shorten the story, but some years later, it ended up turning into a full-time job. 
with that vice president of student affairs. Nice. And I had this unique position where I was actually doing counseling and research at the same time. Um, and then eventually I was kind of like, I, I think I really would just like to focus on the research. And in graduate school, I met several people who worked at the community college because I, I went to um, I went to a UC right out of high school. So I didn't have that experience, but I did take a few classes during the summer at the local community college. And just from talking to my my classmates who worked at the community college, I started to think that maybe that was a better fit for me. And so I made the switch and I've been at the community college in this sphere uh, for more years than I'd care to admit. <laughs> well, and so that's and that was your second of, of three careers, really. So starting with counselor, going on to researcher and now CEO of a uh, of an education research nonprofit. Yeah, I didn't see that one coming. Um, I, I fully expected to kind of stick with the research career until retirement. That I, I assumed retirement was going to be my third uh, career. But here I am, um, and uh, I love what I do. I love our, our organization and, and what we stand for and what we have been, are, and are trying to be. Um, so it's exciting. And we're so thankful that you are in that role because, among other things, you've been doing great research, including being the driving force, co-directing Through the Gate since 2016, which is a, a research initiative supported by College Futures Foundation, uh, ECMC Foundation, and the Lumina Foundation. It involves more than 2 million students and is focused on identifying ways to increase the transfer rates of community college students who are close to transfer but have not yet made it to university. I'd love to hear your perspective on not only why transfer is so important, but maybe some of the initial findings from that first report. The majority of, of the underrepresented groups who attend higher education start out in the community college. It is their way to the university. Many students, for a variety of reasons, are not able to access the university right out of high school. And so they need to have a way to get another way to get to the university because, again, there's lots of data that shows the, how much having a bachelor's degree can affect your, your quality of life, your ability to, to make money, right, for that econ economic mobility. And so that's why transfer is key. If you have most of the students from these underrepresented groups accessing um, the university in this way, then transfer is key. So if we're not looking at equity in transfer, then we're not looking at equity. So through the gate started um, from some simple conversations among colleagues, we're getting a sense that there was a group of students out there who were doing all the work, taking the classes, paying the money, spending the time and the energy, amassing a lot of units, and in some cases, significant debt and then not going on to, to the university. And so that's kind of a head scratcher, right? It's like, why would anybody go through all of that and not go to the next step? Transfer is not the student's ultimate goal. Students don't transfer and go, woohoo, I'm done, <laughs> right? It's a step to their, you know, their next goal, which is obviously achieving a bachelor's degree. And in most cases, there's other goals after that, whether that's graduate education or a, a career. And so we, we have to kind of keep that in mind when we're, we're looking at that is that transfer is not the goal. It's a goal. It's an intermediate goal. But it is the, the, the hurdle you must get over <laughs> to get to those other goals. So we started off by just looking at the data. And over the five-year period that we looked at, we found about uh, 300,000 students who fit this category. 
And so it was kind of like, okay, I think we need to research this a bit more. <laughs> we need to find out what is going on, what, what, what is happening with, with students who, again, spend all the time, money, energy, and don't transfer. Why not? And so we, we looked at the, the quantitative data in a, in a variety of ways and, and then said, okay, that's great. That's lots of information, you know, kind of came from that. Um, but we also need to find these students and ask them. Because you're not going to get the why from the data. You can get the who and some of the what, a little bit of the how, but not the why. And so that's really what, what our Through the Gate study was designed to do. And then since then, it has spawned other studies. So in the report, one of the things it talks about is that it's not just a did you or didn't you transfer, but you really developed an entire transfer continuum around the student journey. Is that right? Correct. Um, again, it's acknowledging that students don't just transfer or not transfer, that there's, there's a a whole journey (laughs) that it takes a lot of, again, time, energy, effort to get there. And so our study, uh, kind of categorized, uh, this group of students and we referenced them as high leverage students. And, And we use that term because these are students who have, in most cases, at least 60 units of transferable credits. Right. And and some of them have met their English and math requirements. Some haven't. But that's a lot of time and effort. And and those students are are going to be easier to leverage. Right. To to get to transfer than than working with someone who only has 10 units, zero units, 20 units, that kind of thing. So that's that's what that is. And, And essentially the that high leverage group, we call them at the gate and near the gate. And the real difference between the two is the English and math completion. Um, so our at-the-gate students, from again, from everything we can tell in the data and the quantitative data, they've met the, they've checked all the boxes. They've got the 60-plus transferable units. They've, they've got a 2.0. They've completed their transfer-level English and math. And we also included in that group students who had completed the associate degree for transfer. That's something specific here to California. That is, is supposed to, it's, you know, more complicated than I'm going to simplify it, but it, it's supposed to guarantee your your um, admission into a California state university. If you have this degree, it's your ticket into the university. So again, why would somebody go through the effort of completing that degree, which literally has transfer in the name, <laughs> and then not transfer, right? So that that's kind of our at-the-gate group. And the near-the-gate group are students who also have the 60 units, also have the 2.0, but they have not completed the English and math. Some of them may have completed one or the other or neither, but that is that is their hurdle that they seem to, you know, they haven't been able to, to go over. So they're very near the gate, but they're not quite at the gate. Hey, for everyone listening, hang tight. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be back in just one minute. All colleges and universities face challenges in advancing the mission of higher education. Some problems impeding your progress are known, but others are invisible, hidden, impossible to address. Invoke Learning changes everything. Built on revolutionary technology that's light years beyond anything you've seen yet, our leading edge data platforms and deep analytic solutions Give institutions of higher education some real-life superpowers to support the entire student journey. Ask questions you never imagined could be answered. Get unprecedented insights that lead to mission-impacting action. 
What's holding you back today from taking your mission further tomorrow? Find out and discover just how far you can go. Contact Invoke Learning at www.invokelearning.com. Invoke Learning. This is education empowered. Thanks so much for listening to our sponsor. Let's get back to the show. Now, amongst those different groups, one of the things that you did with the study was explore the role of gender and race, ethnicity, and even region for students at different points in the transfer continuum with, I thought, some interesting and intriguing findings amongst the uh, African-American and Latino communities, if you could share some of those results. Absolutely. So um, the the finding that surprised a lot of people, but not me, because I had done research in this area before was, again, if you look at the group of students, the, the two that I mentioned, the at the gate and the near the gate, and then you, you look at every, and then you add in the students who actually did transfer, right? So you've got kind of those three groups. Out of the entire population that we looked at, the, the proportions were basically about two-thirds had transferred, and the other third was split uh, between the at the gate and the near the gate students, so around 66%. Well, then we disaggregated that data to see what those numbers look like for each um, ethnic group. And we looked at gender, not not as much of a difference there. There were some differences by you know certain, certain regions, but the most striking finding in that case was with our African-American students, where they actually were the most likely to have transferred out of that group. So again, I, that 66%, that was for the whole group. That same number for African-Americans was 75, Wow, 75%. Um, and so it, it wasn't just that they were higher than the average, they were the highest, which kind of, you know, lended itself to, you know, for us to kind of ask the question, huh? <laughs> I know that's not very, we don't actually write research questions like, huh? But that was the, 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 the motivation to go, we, we need to find out what's happening because what that said to us is that, well, first of all, you have to, to step back and look at, if you look at transfer rates from the point of freshmen, right? Follow them for some period of time, usually, you know, six years or so. African-Americans have a, usually among the lowest transfer rates when you look at it from that starting point. But if you look at it from this point of like 60 units, essentially, so students who can make it to some point, I don't think the point is 60 units, but some something is happening between zero and 60 where it flips and they go from being kind of, if not the least likely, much the, among the least likely to the most likely, something's going on. And that's where, you know, um, which we'll again we'll talk about in a little bit, it spawned you know, a, a new research project and to try to find out what, what is that tipping point? What is it that is turning the, 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 the picture around for our African-American students? And then regarding our, our, our Latinx, our, our Latina, Latino uh, communities, what we found um, with them was that they were actually the group most likely to earn uh, that ADT, that associate degree for transfer. And they, but, and, but they were the least likely to transfer. Interesting. So again, that's that head scratcher in terms of why would anyone put forth this effort and not transfer. So we're actually in the process now of trying to, to find uh, support to conduct that research study, to dig into that question in terms of how this particular population is, is being affected and what, 
again, all of our research is not just to kind of point the finger to say, oh, look at this problem, this problem, that problem. It's more right, about right, right. who's solving this problem. And so with, with both of these studies, we want to find the, the, the places that don't fit the stereotype, right, that don't match the data, that are excelling at transferring African-American students that, or, and, and Latinx students. So that's, that's kind of where the direction that we're headed in right now. That'll be intriguing. I know. Now, on the original report, you did publish phase two near around the beginning of the pandemic. It was around May and July of 2020. And in this case, you actually had gone further in terms of interviewing and surveying the students to determine factors that were most relevant to them as they were deciding whether or not to transfer to the university. So I imagine getting to that why that you were talking about. And personally, I love this kind of on the ground subject oriented research. What did you hear from the students? So much, <laughs> so much. <laughs> but we, we were able to boil it down to what uh, we call our student transfer capacity building framework, which is four factors um, that, uh, again, when we ask students what is helping or hindering their ability to transfer, you know, again, after they've reached these milestones, again, we talked to the students who met those categories, that near the gate or at the gate um, criteria. And so the four factors, the number one factor, and, and again, we disaggregated data. There's, there's so much information that, that we don't have time for me to go into. But what, the one thing I will say about the disaggregation is that for, that for the first factor, there were no differences, meaning it was everyone's number one factor as a challenge, the number one most challenging factor, and, and that is called university affordability. And what it more or less boils down to is that students don't, they don't know if they can afford the university. They, they can't see it. They can't, they, they, they can't see the possibility. They don't see a way, you know, to, to doing that. They don't have enough information while they're still like in community college, while they're considering things. Because again, everybody can look up a website and see what tuition costs. But they also have enough knowledge to know that's not it. Right. There's so many there's it, there's so many other costs to go into the university and not just the ones at the university, you know, books and things like that. But how am I going to where am I going to live? How am I going to pay for that? I've got children. I've got, you know, family. I've got there's a lot of I've got and I've got to work. I, how, how am I going to get there? What's the transportation? What about child care? There's all these different factors that students are like, I don't see a way. And me personally, we didn't necessarily verify this in the research, but just in talking to students, they, if you think about it from this perspective, at least here in California, you, a lot of students can qualify to get their tuition paid for um, in the California community college system. A lot of students qualify for that. Well, if they're going to, and then that's it. That's the only aid that they get. They have to figure out how to pay for everything else. Um, if they apply that same logic to the university, they're, they're going to go, I can't afford it. If all you're going to pay for is tuition, I, I still can't afford, you know, to go to the university. So they don't also know that the financial aid gates, so to speak, open up at the university. There's a bunch of financial aid that's only available to university students that's not available to college students. So again, it's things like that that we need to, to do a better job of, of helping students understand and just see that it's possible. Um, 
The other factors, uh, there, we did find some differences, again, uh, disaggregating, but pathway navigation, students talked a lot about um, not taking the right classes at the right time in the right order, not getting the information that they need to be making the right decisions, um, not uh, knowing what their major is, not really getting uh, enough help to kind of figure out their path. So uh, a lot about that. The other one, huge school life balance. You know, our students in, in, in our community colleges are, are juggling a lot of things. I said a lot of them are parents or, or they have other family responsibilities for siblings or grandparents, you know, uh, parents, things like that. They have to work. Uh, there, there's a lot going on in their lives and uh, they're, they're, they struggle trying to see how am I going to be able to balance everything in my life with going to the university. I'm just not seeing it. So a lot, of, a lot of these factors are, are the students' inability to see what's possible. They don't know what kind of help is available for, for them. They don't know what the schedules look, you know, options are. You know, do they have online classes? Do they have evening classes? Do they have weekend classes? You know, all of those kind. Of, can I go part time? All of those things are kind of unclear to, to, to students. They're, they're not made obvious. And then the final factor is support network, which is just acknowledging that that. Uh, Hardly anybody does it alone. <laughs> I don't know anybody who has, quite frankly, in some capacity, whether it's your family at home, whether it's a group of friends, whether it's a counselor, a teacher, uh, someone who works in the cafeteria, it doesn't matter. But, but kind of emphasizing that, what we saw was that having a network or not having one really did influence students kind of, again, seeing the possibility of transfer. Students who had that support network and again, it's a variety of people fulfilling a variety of needs and a variety of roles. Um, people who had that were much more optimistic about their, their chances of, of going on to transfer. The people who didn't have that were pessimistic. They, they weren't sure um, how they were going to, to do it. So that was so interesting. But I think the purpose of the framework is, is to kind of take things that a lot of us kind of already knew in some ways, but to put it in, in something concrete and tangible, and and it it might it helped hopefully gives you the framework to target your efforts to try to say what can you do about support network, what can you do about university affordability, as opposed to the bigger question, which is how do we help students transfer? You'd mentioned the report, the the student transfer capacity building framework. Now, with that in mind, are there things that colleges can do now to help better support students achieving transfer, both? both in the way that we used to look at it pre-pandemic as well as now during and, and toward the later ends of the pandemic. What can colleges do? Absolutely. Well, first I'll say, you know, we, we've put out a variety of reports and briefs and infographics and things like that. And in all of them includes advice, recommendations of, of what colleges and universities can do um, to, to help students transfer. And, and again, they were in the original study there were recommendations there, phase two, the COVID uh, survey as well. So there's recommendations all along the way. But I would say the overall kind of recommendation is that transfer is not the community college's responsibility solely. They must, universities must step up and be true partners in this. And, and, and it has to go beyond, you know, what do they call those university days or, you know, where the universities come to campus. It, it's, it's got to be much, much right. more effort has to be put into that, uh, helping students uh, as close to seamless as possible. But 
but most importantly, to, they need to, to see it. They need to see that it's possible for them and how, how it's possible, not just a dream with no, no specifics, but literally how is it going to be possible for me to go to the, to the university? And so um, that's kind of the key thing in terms of the university affordability. Again, if that's their chief concern, then that's what we need to be focusing on, getting helping students see it in a realistic way, not just like, I'm sure it'll be okay. And again, I'm not promoting that we should start packaging students for financial aid at the university while they're still at the community college, obviously not. But even just telling them, this is, this, these are all the costs, and these are the, this is the, the financial aid, scholarships, work study, all the different ways that you can access, that you may not have access to now um, when you transfer to, to the university, that there, there is more aid available to you. Finding ways to give students the information they need based on where they are in their journey. Because that student who has zero units, who has 30 units, who has 45 units, 60 units, they need different information. And there's so many times, I've been doing this a long time, and, and one thing I have heard consistently for, again, longer than years than I want to quantify, is the student saying, I wish I had known about this earlier. Whether that's a program, whether that's a requirement, whether that's advice, you know, uh, that, that would set them up for success. They wish they had known about things earlier. So really kind of taking into account and mapping out what does a student with zero units, 15 units, 30 units, 45 units, 60 units need to know at that time. Um, school life balance, this is one where we were concerned that when we put this out there that people would kind of push back, college folks would push back and say, well, I can't control their life. I can't change their the fact that they're a parent. And I'm like, no, of course not. But are you trying to take that into consideration when you're scheduling, when you're scheduling classes, how you offer the classes? Are faculty taking that into consideration in terms of these, these rules of no, accept, no late papers and no, no exceptions and none of this? Where's the compassion? That's, that's what school life balance, you know, that factor is really trying to appeal to is where's your compassion. And then I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, just, uh, just let everything go. Obviously, students need structure. They need to understand. And, and a lot of people kind of argue about the real world doesn't have that. I'm like, actually, the real world does have exceptions, <laughs> quite frankly. Right. You know, who you know and where you are and, you know, what you know and all of those things. So compassion. Um, and also looking at your services. If you're only open, you know, nine to four, what about the student who works nine to five, right? How are they supposed to access tutoring? How are they supposed to, you know, get to financial aid, you know, have things online. That's the other thing the pandemic showed us. And we heard this from a lot of students is how certain services were actually became more accessible in the pandemic because they were forced to, to go online. You had to make an appointment online versus there were schools that make students have to come in person at a certain time on a certain day, make an appointment, not to see the counselor, to make an appointment to see the counselor. And when they run out of, out of appointments, try again next week. But with the online scheduling, students can go in at whatever time onto the website, look it up, all of that's fine. Uh, so that's kind of the... Uh, piece about the, the compassion and that. And then finally, again, support network. First, you got to let students know that they need to build one. They need to have one. They cannot do this alone. And then help them build it. Facilitate different kinds of activities and opportunities for them to, to get to know their teachers, to get to know counselors, to get to know other students and other people on the campus. 
the research has spawned additional uh, research efforts as well, uh, including what looks to be some exciting insights into African-American students with the African-American Transfer Tipping Point Study. Now, I think you're near the end of that study, and I wondered if there were any insights that you could share with us about the work, maybe ahead of the actual official report publication. Well, this study is, is modeled very similar to Through the Gate in terms of phases. So we're, we're just ending the first phase, which is that quantitative piece. And again, trying to find in that data, where are those, again, kind of tipping points, where, where what is making the difference between a student being more or less likely uh, to transfer. So we, we did that research and we looked at the results and went, huh, what does that mean? <laughs> and so we concluded that we needed to, to pause and, and speak to students and practitioners to try to get some context around what these results kind of mean. And we're very, very thankful that we took that pause because we were very concerned about if we just release this information without context, people are just going to go, oh, well, that's it. Nothing we can do about it. <laughs> kind of that response. And so we wanted to, to say, to try to give, again, that context, some nuance to where it's like, well, we, why is this finding? Why did we, you know, find this had a, a, an impact? And so our plan is to uh, release the, the information, the reports, and we're going to have a webinar uh, in October is, is what we're, we're targeting. But it's not surprisingly, uh, what we found was that completing transfer level English and math uh, was a significant influence on, it, on whether a student was going to be uh, successful. And, uh, but in addition to that, we found impacts related to counseling, whether students received counseling or not. Um, whether students had been put on academic probation or not, and whether they had participated in a program that we have here in the state of California is called UMOJA, U-M-O-J-A, UMOJA, which is a, a African term for, for unity. And it's a program that is for African-American students in the, uh, the California Community College system. And so we found that students, you know, being able to, who participated in that um, had higher chances for success. So that's, that's where we are. You know, there'll be lots more information coming in October. So I invite you to, and your listeners to um, check that out when, when those come out. I know we're getting close to, uh, to wrapping up, but before we do, I typically love for our listeners to hear these insights and these experiences from our guests that, that might help give them the higher edge in the way they look at and approach things. So I'm curious, we started by talking about your journey from counselor to researcher to CEO. And I wondered if along the way there was a, a story maybe about something someone said or something you experienced that maybe helped shape the way you look at and approach your work that you could share. What comes to mind is to work hard and be open. And so you have to be open to the opportunities that, that come your way. But the, the opportunities are more likely to come your way if, if you work hard and people see that. If you let people see who you are, what you can do. Um, then that you're more likely to for somebody to reach out and say, hey, you ever thought about doing this? Hey, I think you'd be good at that um, because you, you got to let people see your 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 shine. Right. You've got to let people see what a star you you are. And then you just have to, to be open to making that left turn. You know, uh, again, I, I none of these steps along my my journey 
were what I originally planned or planned after that or planned after that. It was always just kind of like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm happy doing what I'm doing, but I'm, I'm working hard. I'm letting people see, again, who I am and what I can do. And opportunities, you know, came my way. And I, I said, yes, <laughs> I said, yes. Great advice. Well, Darla, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your experiences with us today. Uh, For our listeners, we've been talking with Darla Cooper, the executive director for the RP Group in California. For more information about the RP Group and to download full copies of the published work, including the studies mentioned on today's show, please visit their website at www.rpgroup.org. Darla, would it be all right with you if listeners would like to reach out to you with questions about today's episode? Absolutely. If you're listening and you'd like to continue the conversation with Darla, just drop an email to darla at thehigheredge.com. That's darla, D-A-R-L-A, at thehigheredge.com. Darla, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks again for coming on and being a guest with us uh, on The Higher Edge. And for everyone listening, I'm Brendan Aldrich, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to The Higher Edge. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, Leave us a review if you loved the show, and be sure to connect with Brendan on LinkedIn. Know someone who's making big changes at their higher ed institution that belongs on this podcast? Drop us a line at podcasts at thehigheredge.com. The Higher Edge is sponsored by Invoke Learning in partnership with Westport Studios. Views and opinions expressed by individuals during the podcast are their own. See how Invoke Learning is empowering higher education at invokelearning.com.